Okay, let's clear our minds of thoughts of Christmas pudding. And uh, instead, let's turn in our Bibles, if you've got them, if you can turn to James uh, and chapter 1. We are going to be continuing our series, which we're only a couple of weeks into now, um, which we've called A Letter from James. We're going to be based in uh, this book of James, this letter that James wrote. We've already established over the last uh, few weeks that the James who wrote this letter is Jesus' half-brother. He's a leader, uh, an early leader in the Jerusalem church, and his letter was a letter that was written to all believers scattered through the ancient Mediterranean world. So the believers had been scattered through persecution. Uh, they'd been dispersed right throughout that region, throughout that area. And this letter that James is writing is for each and every single one of them. And it's a very fast-moving letter uh, where James addresses everyday issues of living. He speaks into how we speak, how we should think about wealth or lack of wealth, how we should think uh, how to approach conflict, sickness and suffering. So in many senses, it's a fairly practical letter, a very helpful letter for us in knowing how it is that we should live uh, and in certain ways. But if we wanted to summarize it all, actually, um, ultimately, it's all about what it truly means to follow the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what really comes through James's heart in writing to uh, the believers, what it truly means to follow the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And as an eldership team, as a leadership team, we're very expectant about the coming weeks as we explore this letter together. And it is our prayer that God will do a good work in us through it as we take the time uh, just working our way through, exploring, resting in, meditating upon that. I know we've given an encouragement a few times over the last few weeks to uh, really encourage each one of us to be reading the letter of James through the week. So that as we come in Sunday by Sunday, actually we've had time to think and to reflect and to meditate, to allow questions to come up, to allow thoughts and insights to arise. And Pete so helpfully, I think, encouraged us in that in the first week as we were looking at, looking at this. There are five chapters in James. They're fairly short chapters. If you set aside sort of five, ten minutes a day, read a chapter a day, through, by the week you'd have read through James with a couple of days to spare as well. And then once we've made it... What do we do the next week? Let's start again. Let's read it through again and see what else uh, comes to the surface, what else comes uh, to mind. So I'd really encourage you to do that. If that's the first time you've heard of that and you're thinking, well, we're already partway through the, the series already, that's okay. Pick it up tomorrow and let's just take some time to, to read it through. Again, I'm really expectant that actually as we do that and we allow ourselves to sit in and rest in the scriptures, uh, that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will do a very good work through us. So... Where are we up to so far? Uh, we're only a couple of, of, like I say, we're only a couple of weeks in, so the kind of recap shouldn't take too long. But last week, Pete so helpfully led us through James's warning, uh, but also his encouragement that we are to see trials as opportunities to grow in steadfastness and in maturity. And it's not that we sometimes, you know, you might face trials. The way that James writes is actually when you face trials and when you face adversity. There's this expectation that actually uh, through the Christian life we will face difficulties and challenges and we will face persecution, but actually we're to see these as opportunities for growth and opportunities to become mature. 
The reality is, is that we all face trials and adversity, and whether we handle them well or not, the reality is, is that you will not stay the same. That's what we do know. When we face trials and we do face adversity, whether we handle them well or whether we handle them not so well, we won't be the same. It will change us in some way. But actually, James's encouragement to us is this, is to see these trials as opportunities for growth. But how that doesn't, I don't think that sits naturally with us because we don't necessarily see these things as opportunities for growth. We see them as things that we'd rather just not have to go through and not to face. But actually, there's this whole element of having to trust God and to fix our eyes on him as he leads us through those times. And so that's where we're going to be uh, picking up from. We're going to be reading from verse 12. So I'm actually going to be picking up from the last verse uh, that Pete left us at last week. And we're going to read through to verse 18. So if you have been reading through the book of James, you'll know what to expect. Uh, But let's read together. So where did Pete leave us last week? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's kind of a summary, really, then, of last week. Then James continues, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It might seem a little bit disconnected in James's thinking from where we were at last week to where we find ourselves this week, almost like we've jumped onto something new. But actually, this is all part of the same concern that James has. He goes from speaking about trial to speaking about temptation, but it's all part of the same, under the same umbrella, if you like, all part of the same thing, because temptation is a facet of trial. What we will find when we face trial is that actually temptation very often will come into it. It will come alongside it. Could be that, there's, that the, the, the temptation we face is sort of a, a reaction to the trial that we're facing, a response to it. It might make us feel a certain way and, we, and there's a temptation to act out on that as a response to what is going on in our lives. Maybe the temptation will come because we're looking for an escape from the trial. And whether that's a, an escape to get out of it completely or just escapism in terms, of, in terms of I just need a moment where I'm not totally consumed by what is going on and what I'm facing. And there's that temptation to think, actually, what could I do to, to just have a bit of relief or a bit of, bit of peace for a moment? There's that temptation that comes. Or maybe, kind of t- tied to that maybe, maybe there's a temptation to look for, for comfort. I'm going through a situation where I just feel rubbish and I can't see a way out and I just need to feel something good, even if just for a moment. I need to find some sort of comfort. And it could be many more ways in which temptation comes. But they're linked together. When, temp- when trials come, temptation will come along with it. And so James's concern is from last week is continuing into this week. Actually, he's just leading us on a little bit further and helping us as he helps us to walk through uh, more and more through this. 
And just as James saw trial as a part of the Christian life or an expectation of the Christian life, it's clear that James sees temptation as a normal feature of the Christian life. Not just something that one or two experience, not just something that we might experience from time to time. And so we're not to be deceived or blinkered to this, but to be fully aware of where it comes from and how we overcome it. Because if James's heart for us and his call for us is that we're to remain steadfast and we're to remain sure, then surely that means that there's a way that we can overcome the temptations that we face. And so in a way, we want to see uh, that the problem that is there But James doesn't leave us just with a problem, actually. He says, this is how we can overcome, and this is how we can remain steadfast in the trials and the temptations that we face. But as soon as James brings temptation into the conversation, we're faced with a problem. Part of the problem is this, is that our reflex so often is to lay the blame for our temptation elsewhere. Not on ourselves. We want to find that we want to lay the blame for it somewhere else. And one of the places that we may try to lay the blame is with God. Why is God allowing me to go through this? Why is God leading me into this? But this is a problem because this is incompatible with who God is. It's incompatible with his nature. It's incompatible with his character. We see when we jump right back to the beginning of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, they're they're tempted, aren't they, by the serpent. They're tempted not to trust God as he twists God's words and he he entices them with something that God has said, actually, that is not for you. You need to leave that alone. And yet the enemy comes in and he tempts them there. And what happens? Temptation leads to sin. And when sin comes in, there's a fracturing of of their relationship with God and their expulsion from the garden. Why? Because God can have no part of the evil that has come in. God can have no part of the sin that has come in. So if that is true, then it means that God can have no part in temptation. Because it's just not, it doesn't fit with who he is. It's not his character. It is not his nature. So we cannot lay the blame at God's feet because it hasn't come from him. The truth of where temptation comes from is an uncomfortable one. Are you ready to be uncomfortable? The truth of where temptation comes from is an uncomfortable one. And James tells us here in verse 14, he says, but each person, so not just one or two people, each person, all of us will face this, is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by God, not by some outside force, but by his own desire. The source of it is something that's within us. It's not an external thing. It's something that is in each one of us. It's uncomfortable to be faced with this reality that the temptations that we face come from within those things that come from our own hearts. And again, if we, we've already mentioned about what happened to Eden and right from that place when sin first enters in, everything that was ordered has become disordered and now we are born wanting the wrong things. It's just the way that we're we're born and we're wired. Actually, we desire not just good things, but fairly often we desire the wrong things. And this is what James is saying. Actually, where does the temptation come from? It comes from what is in us, what is in our hearts, the things that we long for, the things that we desire. 
Tim Keller is super helpful on this. And he says, actually, we can confuse the occasion for our sin with the cause of our sin. So we can see the circumstances. Oh, if this hadn't happened, then I wouldn't have been tempted to sin. He's saying, actually, that's not right. You need to take a step further back. Our circumstances can be an occasion for our sin where sin happens, or our temptation happens, but it's not the cause of it. The cause of it is what's going on in our hearts. The cause of it is what we long for and what we desire inside. Our circumstances merely might just present an opportunity for us to act on it. But that's not, that's not the reason for it. Can you see where I'm coming from? And again, it's a sense that we can blame our circumstances and we can blame our situation. If, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done that. If this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have felt that way or wanted to act out that way. And actually, we've just got to take a step back and say, actually, where did that really come from? Yes, there were circumstances, but we need to take a step back because actually it's come from what is within us. The language James uses is very deliberate and it's also very insightful. He speaks about uh, our desires being those very things that allure us and entice us. This kind of imagery of uh, maybe fishing or, or hunting where you're baiting up an area and you know, you're not looking to give that fish a treat by putting all of that good stuff in there. You're not doing it for their good. You're doing it because you want to draw them away from safety in order to catch them or to ensnare them. And this is the language that James is using in saying, this is actually, if we're not careful, this is what our desires can do, is that they can take us out from a safe place and actually lure us into a place where we're going to be trapped and ensnared. It's, quite, it's not passive language here, is it? It's like, actually, it's, it's uncomfortable. I don't, like, I don't like what James is saying right now. <laughs> but actually, we need to be aware of it because James is warning us of this for a reason. And this is what our desires have the potential to do, to take us away and lead us into a place where actually we are not safe. And the reason I say potential to do is because it's not a foregone conclusion. But the potential is there because if left unchecked or undealt with, there's a progression that our desires can lead us into. It's, it, that's where it starts. And actually, if we don't deal with it there, it will lead us on. James says, actually, when our desires uh, have been conceived, we think, don't we, of conception in terms of a child being conceived in the womb, in the hidden place, those places that are unseen. And this is what James is saying. Actually, in those hidden places, our desires can find themselves actually being conceived. And if we allow ourselves to linger on them and allowing them to, 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 to be fed and nurtured, and that's what happens, doesn't it, to a baby in the womb. In those hidden places that they're fed and they're nurtured and they grow and they strengthen. And, you know, many births are a great cause. Births are often a cause for great celebration, aren't they? But not this one that James is talking about. He's saying actually what goes on in those hidden places, in those, in those unseen um, places that uh, our desires, when they're fed and nurtured in our hearts and in their minds, they lead to action. They work themselves out into action and behaviour. And when those desires are ungodly, so too is the resulting behaviour. Because it's been given that time to, to grow and to be nurtured. And sin is born. But that's not the end of the process. 
How many times have you ever heard someone say, oh, you've, you've just got to get it out of your system. You're feeling a certain way, just do it. You've just got to get it out of your system and then it's done and you can move on. You know, that could be good things, that could be bad things. You've just got to get it out of your system. And I think sin gets into us in that same way where sometimes we think, I just need to, I'll just do it and it will just get it out of my system and then I can move on. But that's not the way it works. Because sin grows and it strengthens and its hold over us gets greater. When it's given sin, when given space and time, it grows. It keeps taking us further and further beyond where we had planned that it would take us. And this is what James is saying. If we don't deal with temptation at its source and we allow it that space and that time to grow, inevitably it leads us to sin. And and growing fully, sin gives birth to death. Romans 6.23 is very clear on this. Paul writes, he says, the wages of sin is death. What sin earns you, where sin gets you, is always to death. And again, jumping back to Eden, I know we've done that a few times this morning, but as we jump back to Eden, we see that there. That actually when sin comes in, so too does death. And spiritual death, separation from God. Because sin doesn't lead you anywhere good. It promises that it will lead you to good places, but it never does. Even if in the moment you don't see the consequence of it, given time and space to grow and to strengthen, eventually it will only ever bring you loss. And in, in always it leads to death and loss. And rightly so, we think of it in terms of our relationship to God, and we think of it in terms of, of spiritual death, if you like, spiritual separation from God, but in always as well. And the consequences of that that we face in the here and now. And it would, in, in many ways, sin can lead to the death of hope. It can lead to the death of relationships, to the loss of peace, to the loss of health. I could go on and on, and maybe we've experienced that in our own lives in, in different ways and in different aspects. But sin never leads anywhere good. It always leads to loss. And it always leads to death. But how often when temptation comes, do we fully realise or conceive what it will grow into? I think if we, if we recognise that from the very get-go, then we would deal with it very differently when temptation comes. But we don't. We think, oh, that, it, will only, it will only go so far. I just need to get it out of my system and then it's done. But that is not the way that it works. We have to learn to deal with sin at the earliest point. In our house at the moment, we're watching so many videos of roller coasters. We went to a theme park in the holidays and to help just prep the kids so they knew what was there, we found some, some videos of rides and you can see them from actually on the ride. And so you get a good idea of what's going on and we're like, I oh, would like to do that one, do that one, we'll give that one a miss. Uh, but since we've come back, this is like flavour of the month. And now the kids are looking at all the theme parks around the world and going, we're going here, we're going here, we're going here. Uh, but what happens is now my like, social media feed and stuff is just full of videos of, of roller coasters because it's like, clearly you like roller coasters, so we're going to keep showing you videos of that. It's roller coasters and cricket, pretty much, are my like, the stuff that comes up. Because that's what it does, doesn't it? When it finds out what you like, it just keeps feeding you with that stuff. Some other videos I've seen, I'm not entirely sure why these keep creeping up, are about um, people who have a lot of snakes, right? And some of these are pretty dangerous snakes. Huge constrictors or very venomous snakes. And in these videos, it's inevitable. They get these big snakes out to show off with and play with. 
And in most of them, there's a warning at the start, like this kind of turned on by this snake, this friendly snake goes wild kind of thing. And in these videos, you're kind of watching it through, through your fingers as you know what's gonna happen where these snakes will just suddenly just go and like try and, and tag the person or get them or whatever. And you're thinking, what are you doing? You, surely you know. And these are people that are like claim to be experts. And you're like, why are you even messing around with this? This is far too serious a thing to be messing around with. And yet they're, they're just going about it. They're filming it for people to see. And you're watching it, you're going, why are you messing around with this? I heard a story this week, uh, a lady called Jen Wilkin told it, and she was talking about these verses actually in James, of someone who, uh, they got a Bengal tiger as a cub. And the thing about Bengal tigers is that they don't, well, all animals don't stay as babies, they grow, right? But the thing about a Bengal tiger is it doesn't stay as a cub, it grows into a 500 pound Bengal tiger, okay? And this person who had had this tiger from a cub when it was all sweet and lovely and nice and cute, once this tiger had grown, one day it turned on them and attacked them. And they went to the hospital to get seen and they blamed it on a pit bull attack because they didn't want the embarrassment of, well, I've got a tiger in my house <laughs> and it's turned on me and it's attacked me. I'm like, well, what did you think would happen? But they never started from that point, did they? What they had, they had a cute cub that they wanted to bring up in the house and to have as their pet and to, they're like, oh, surely we can tame it and we can bring it up and it will be a safe thing. But no, it's turned on them. It's done what tigers do and they're shocked at what's happened and they're embarrassed about the fact that they brought it into their house. It, the, in the beginning stages, it seems harmless and pleasant, but that's not where it leads. And this is actually exactly what happens with temptation if left unchecked. It starts off, this is something harmless and this is something pleasant, but it grows into a 500 pound Bengal tiger. <laughs> but we don't always see that, do we? We see it at the beginning stage. Actually, it's okay, it won't do any harm. In the moment, it feels, it feels okay, it won't grow into anything, but it does. And this is why we need to deal with it at the source, at the earliest point. And there is hope. This is actually, it doesn't seem like good news what James is saying, but there is hope. But he's saying you have to recognize this because actually there is a way that this can be overcome. And the hope is this, is that it is not inevitable that it will happen if we deal with it at the earliest point and right at the source. If we recognize that it's a heart issue, that it's a worship issue, that it's about what is inside us and the things that we desire and the things that we long for, we must be aware, we must not be deceived. Matthew 26 verse 41 when Jesus uh, is with his disciples and Jesus is going to pray in the garden uh, before he's arrested and he says this to his disciples watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak so there's this awareness from Jesus that actually if we're not careful it's easy to fall into temptation and one of the things that we can do to be on the front foot against it to be on the attack against it is this, pray. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. So actually, one of the things that we can do when, we, when temptation comes along is this, is let's pray. Actually, Jesus, Jesus teaches us to pray, doesn't he? Lead us not into temptation. It's a good thing to pray for. Actually, God, would I not be led into those places in the first instance? Would those temptations not arise in the first instance? But even actually as these temptations come, pray, stand firm. Bring them before God. That's something we can do when we're dealing with them at the very earliest point before they've had that chance to grow. 
before they'd had that chance to, to grow from being that cub into something more dangerous. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. doesn't say watch and pray here. Now we're warned by Paul, flee. He says, flee from sexual immorality. What image does flee put in your mind? To me, it's someone running, not just gently strolling away from something, but getting as far away from something as quickly as you can. Don't mess around with this. Get away from it as quickly as you can. 2 Timothy 2.22, something very similar. So flee youthful passions, he says. Get away from those things and actually fix your eyes and your minds and your hearts on something else. And so there's this urgency here, isn't there, to just get away from it. Move away from it as quickly and as far as you can. But all of these things are from that very earliest stage. Recognize it when it comes and deal with it there. But that's not the whole picture. Yes, those are things that we should do, but that is not the whole picture. And the reason it's not the whole picture is because sin is not simply about breaking rules. If we think of sin simply as about breaking rules, then our, our responses to it are all going to be fairly practical responses, if you like. And so, okay, so I'm going to pray, I'm going to flee, I'm going to do all of those things. But it is not just that. Because James has already shown us this, hasn't he? He's already shown us... Uh, and he's already held up to us that as we work backwards to the source, sin finds its beginning in our desires. Sin is born out of our desires. It's born out of our hearts. It's born out of our worship. It's born out of that which captures our imagination. So yes, we must resist and we must flee, but that is not all we must do. Thomas Chalmers was a, uh, a Scottish preacher in the 1840s and perhaps... His most well-known sermon was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his thesis, if you like, that the center point to this word, to this sermon, was this. That the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object, object on the soul is to show it an object more beautiful. I'm going to say that again because I've got my words all mixed up and we need to hear this. The only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object more beautiful. And that's what we're talking about here. If we're saying temptation is an issue of what goes on in our heart, then actually we need to think about what are the things that captivate our heart? What are the things that we find beautiful? What are the things that capture our imagination? There's a football player called Paul Mullen. I became aware of him very recently. And he, uh, a couple of seasons ago, was the top scorer in Division 2 with Cambridge United. The end of that season, Wrexham, who were in the division below that, decided this is the guy that we want to play for our team. Looking at it, you think the top scorer in Division 2 should not be dropping down a league. He should be going to the next division up or even the one above it. But his decision was that he decided to go to Wrexham. He dropped down a level. The top scorer in the league dropped down into a lower league. And the accusations came and the stories came. The only reason he's gone is for the money. That Wrexham are, play, are paying a ridiculous amount of money for a, for a team in the league that they're in. That's the only reason he would have gone. And I'd watched, I've been watching a program called Welcome to Wrexham. And in one of the episodes, they, Paul Mullen, they address this. And he says, there are loads of stories out there that are saying, I'm only there because they're paying me a ridiculous amount of money. And he says, that's not the truth. You can't believe what they say. And he says, actually, the reason he chose... Wrexham over, other, Wrexham over other teams is it was about being close to his family 
he, he shared on this, on this program, he's got a two and a half year old little boy. And the whole of the year before, when he'd been playing for Cambridge, he'd been away from home. And he'd not had any time with his son. And so actually for him, being able to be closer to home and being closer to his family was the reason that he moved. And he said this, he says, if someone had offered me £60,000 a week to go and play in China, he said, I'd have sat looking at my child thinking, I can't leave you. £60,000 a week. That's, I'm, not, that's, I'm not saying that's a simple thing. That's an offer that potentially he could have got. And that would have looked beautiful to the soul, I'm sure. £60,000 a week to go and play football. But actually for him, there was something far more beautiful than what was being offered. He said, I would have sat looking at my child thinking, I can't leave you. And his decision was based on what was more beautiful to him. The answer to temptation is to be so caught up with and delighting in Jesus that it shows everything else up for what it is. And as we do so, everything else finds its place in him and in reference and relation to him. One of the songs we were singing this morning, we're singing, you, you are like no one else. I've tasted and I've seen that you're high. You, sorry, I've tasted and I've seen that you are greater than it all. That is not just to be a nice lyric in a song that we sing. Actually, that should be the reality in which we're living. And perhaps because I knew what I was going to be speaking on today, I felt very different when I sang that line today. I was thinking, is that actually true for me in my life? Have I tasted and seen that he is greater than it all? Or do I still put some things a little higher than him? But he is like no one else. And the thing is, there is nothing that compares to him. Philippians chapter 4. Verse, I'm going to do just verse 8 actually. It says, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Actually, rather than fixing our hearts and minds on our desires, we're to fix our hearts and minds on the things of Christ. We're to allow ourselves to rest there and to meditate on those things and to be captivated by them and to be caught up with them. And in verse 16, in James's letter, this is what James does. He draws our attention away from ourselves and he draws our attention to God, the more beautiful thing. When Jesus was, was in the wilderness, you may know this, this story may be familiar to, you, familiar to you. Jesus spent a period of time in the wilderness to be, to be tested, go through trials. And Satan comes to him and Satan's tactics of these are all about deception and lies and false promises. He tells Jesus, if you do this, then I will, I'll give you this. If you only trust me, I will give you everything that you've wanted. I'll give it to you. And he comes time and time again. Promises that he would give wonderful things to Jesus and yet Jesus responded every time with the truth of scripture because he refused to exchange the truth for the lie. No matter how tempting that lie might have been, he refused to give into it because he knew actually what the truth was and he actually knew what it was that the father was wanting to give to him, what the father had called him to do, what the father had for him. 
Don't be deceived about, about temptation and its source, but also don't be deceived about good gifts and their source. James's concern with temptation is this. Look within ourselves. James's concern with good gifts is actually we are to look outside of ourselves. More specifically, we're to look to look above. We're to look to God. Look above to the more beautiful thing, to the Father of lights, to the Creator, to the one who made the stars and the sun and the moon. As I was thinking about that, that God has flung the stars and set the stars in the sky, created the universe, the whole of the universe, so much we've barely scratched the surface of what is out there. And in that moment, I was reminded of when God came to Abraham and he told Abraham, actually, look up at those stars, those very stars that he had put in the sky. And he made a promise to Abraham and he said, those stars in the sky, that's how numerous your, your family, your ancestors are going to be. And through them, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And it just struck me that God used those stars that are so magnificent and beautiful and majestic to make a promise to one man. Because the creator God, who, the creator God wonderfully takes an interest in us. He loves us and he knows us and he gives good gifts to us. During worship today, you might have noticed that for quite a lot of it, I was kind of on my knees down the front. And then once I'd gone up, I'd moved once you'd disappeared for a while, Luke. And I was kind of in your space where you were. One of the reasons why I did it is, was because I'm fairly tall. And when I'm down at the front, I'm very aware that if I'm stood anywhere on there, I'm going to stop people from seeing what's going on on the screen. And so actually there are moments where I just feel fairly self-conscious about, I'm very aware of how tall I am and that I can be a bit of a nuisance because I'm going to, I'm going to block people what's going on. I'm not doing it for pity, it's fine. It's just, it's just it is what it is. And, and, but in that moment, I felt actually God say, you, you might feel like that sometimes, but maybe there are some who, who, who feel the opposite, like they're just not seen. Like, what they're going through in their situation, God, they just feel like God is not seeing what's going on. And they just, maybe there are some of you here who just feel absolutely desperate, like, God, I just need you to, I don't feel seen, and I don't feel like you fully get what is going on. And I feel like I'm, I'm just missed. And, and you would want to be the one who is, like, at the front being a nuisance, because I just want to be, I just want to be seen. I want God to see what is going through. And I feel that word specifically here for you today, the creator God wonderfully takes an interest in us. He sees you. He knows you. He knows what you are going through. He loves you. He knows you. And he gives good gifts to us. I just want you to be encouraged. You might feel unseen, but the reality is, is that there's not a moment of your life that goes by where God does not know where you are or what you're doing or how you're feeling. He's with you always. We moved into our um, new house just a few months ago. And one of the very important things was working out whether the builders had put our, the, the support for our washing line in the right place. And so, very keen one morning when we've moved in, where's the sun in relation to where the washing line is? And we're like, they've put it in a good place. Because actually, at the time we'd moved in, as soon as the sun came up, that part of the garden was just in sunlight pretty much the whole day. Looking at it this last week, the sun's coming up, but that part of the garden is completely in, in shade. And it barely gets any of the sunshine through. And you're like, oh, just a few months ago, 
it was easy to dry clothes and now we're leaving stuff out for the whole day and it's still like a little bit damp sometimes when you come in. And why? Because there's a shifting, isn't there, with the seasons about where we are in relation to, to other things that are going on in the universe. It's just part of, part of how things have been created and made. And it helps us to realize and to, to see again that the whole universe is constantly moving and shifting, yet, and this is what James says, God is unchanging and constant. He is the father of lights. He is the one who set the sun, the moon and the stars, the galaxies, the planets, everything. He set it all in, in place. But yet he himself isn't constantly moving. He's not constantly shifting. He's unchanging and constant, which means that in Christ we are secure. It means in Christ we are never in and out of favor like shadow shifting. Sometimes we're in, sometimes we're out. It's not like that. In Christ we are always secure. Because with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James is saying, look, don't look within yourselves. Look out of yourselves. Look above to the one who does not change. There is no shadow or shifting with him. We don't need to worry about what mood God is in. Do you know what? Sometimes, it, you know, all of our moods shift, don't they? And sometimes we can be like, I'm going to avoid that person because they're in a bad mood. I don't know why I looked at you then, mum. It was completely... <laughs> but but we, can, it, we can do that, can't we? And we're like, actually, this isn't a good time to approach that person because I know they've got stuff going on and their mood might be affected. Or even for myself, I think, I'm going to stay away from people today because I know I'm not in a good mood and I don't want to give any reason to upset or offend anyone. But we don't need to worry about what mood God is in. Because he's constant and sure and true. He doesn't shift or change. We don't need to worry if he's as committed to us as he was yesterday. Because that hasn't shifted or changed. He's as committed to you as he always will be. And none of this is dependent on us or on our consistency or on how dependable we are. 1 John 1.9 says this about God, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which means in those moments where we know we've given too much room and space to temptation, and that has been conceived and it's given birth to sin, and we get to that place and we think, what do I do now? The thing we do is we come to God because we know that he is faithful and true. He's not going to turn us away and say, I'm not in the mood to forgive you today. I'm not in the place to forgive you today. I don't think you deserve it today. He'll never say that. Because of who he is. Because he does not shift. He does not change. And yet in our inconsistency and in our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful and constant. I mentioned Romans 6 a little while ago. Romans 6, 23. But I only read half of the verse. We saw it, didn't we? Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. But it's good news he doesn't stop there because he then goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That actually, yes, our sin has, has brought us to this place and our sin has earned us this situation, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what your sin deserves, yet this is what you can now receive in Jesus. This is the more beautiful thing. This is the more beautiful thing. 
As sin is born out of deception and disorder, where we're listening to disordered desires, life comes through truth. Life comes through the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, was born as, as a baby, and he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, who was crucified on the cross, and in doing so, as one who was perfect and had never sinned against the Father, took the, the, the consequence and the price and the punishment of our sin upon himself. And he died, and in doing so, our sin and, and uh, died with him on the cross, but he didn't remain dead. He rose again, and in doing so, there's a promise that what happened to Jesus will also happen to us. The new life that Jesus received is now available to us because he died the death that we deserved. That is the wonderful message of the gospel that says that actually for all those who believe on him, they too will have the life that Jesus now has. That is the truth that life comes from. This is not initiated by us, but of God's own will. His desire, his love, his grace. The farmers and gardeners, when they see the first shoots emerge from the ground of the crop that they've planted, or when they see the first buds appearing on the trees, that's a good sign for them because they know that the rest of the harvest is going to follow. As soon as they see those first fruits come through, they're like, yes. I know the rest is going to come because I've seen that the first things are there. And James says this about those who have received this new life. He says, you are those first fruits of what is to come. The emergence of what lays ahead as one day the whole of creation is going to be renewed in him. What a beautiful plan. What a beautiful promise. Far more beautiful than anything this world can offer. So brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Be aware. We need to be aware that we will face temptation in this life. We should expect it because it's going to come. Do not be deceived. Know where that temptation finds its root, finds its source. It's within us. It's these disordered desires that are in our hearts. But don't despair. Instead, look above to the more beautiful thing. Fix your eyes on him. Put your hope in him. Devote yourself to him above all things. Because he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Shall we pray? Father God, there are parts of your word that we would rather not read, that we would rather not be confronted with, that we would rather not be challenged by, because it makes us feel uncomfortable, because it makes us face up to realities that we'd rather not face, because it stands against the prevailing message of our culture and our society. But Lord, I want to thank you for every word For every message, for every challenge, for every encouragement, for every instruction. Because we, Lord, we know that it brings life. So Lord, I want to thank you for what we've been able to explore today. 
Even though it's something that we might not like to talk about, we need to hear it. Lord, we want to take hold of, of James's <coughs> exhortation. We want to take hold of James's warning. We want to recognise, Lord, the reality of what does go on in our hearts. Because as we do so, Lord, we can be so much more on the front foot, Lord, when temptation comes. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help each one of us to be, Lord, in the, in the coming days and weeks, just so much more aware, Lord, when trial comes, when temptation comes, that we just take that step of thinking, actually, what's really going on here? What's going on inside of me? Even though it might seem that circumstances are, are pushing us a certain way, would you help us to just be able to find pause in those moments and just to think, actually, what is really going on? Lord, I pray that you would help us through those moments, whether it's prayer, whether it's fleeing, whether it's actually God just fix my eyes on you again, that I would see the more beautiful thing. We say, Holy Spirit, would you come and help us in our weakness? Because where we are weak, you are strong. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that for each one. And Lord, I pray, actually, as, as um, James has encouraged us to look above, to look to you. Father, would you, as we look to you, would everything else just be shown up for what it really is? That everything, even the good things that you have given us, would find their rightful place in respect to who you are. That we would handle those things well in light of who you are. Father, perhaps where we've grown dim in our affections of you, Holy Spirit, would you come and just stir us afresh? That actually you would show up those false promises and those lies and those deceptions for what they truly are. That we would fix our hearts and our minds on the things that are true. On the things that will last. On the things that are truly good. And as we do so, I pray that the lure and enticement of sin grows ever fainter, uh, fainter, fainter and fainter when held up against who you are. And in your promises for us. And in your purposes for us. Lord, let us not be waylaid or distracted by things that will only lead to death. But Lord, let us be so caught up with the things of you and the things of heaven and the things of your kingdom that our lives would be poured out as those who want to bring glory to you, who want to keep growing and maturing to becoming more and more like Christ, which is the promise and, and what you've made available to us through Jesus. So help us in that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.